Please pray with me as we dedicate our tithes and offerings and come to God's word. Father, we do praise you, for you alone are God, and we recognize that you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so we have gathered here this morning to do just that, and, and we also recognize ourselves to be creatures those that you have made in your image, dependent and wholly trusting upon your good and gracious hands to sustain our lives and give to us all that we know and all that we have. And so, Father, here we are with open hands, giving back to you uh, what we have, the praise of our hearts and minds and our lips. Um, We give to you our lives. We give to you our resources. And we pray that you would use these things for your glory, for the good of your church, that the gospel, the kingdom would be proclaimed and advance and go out in our community and across the world. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would open our ears that we might hear, our minds that we might understand, our hearts that we would respond, our wills that we would be moved and respond to you rightly. Father, would you help us, be with us, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, and this, again, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. As we come to this text, what we'll find in it are two very different people, Uh, one a a man, one a woman. Uh, One is named, the other is unnamed. Uh, One is wealthy, the other destitute. One is a respected leader in his community, the other is an outcast in her community. Uh, One is facing a loss after 12 years of joy, and the other one is looking to lose 12 years of pain. Uh, But despite their differences, they're brought together in this moment with Jesus because they share a common reality. They have uh, reached an end of their hope, and they're looking for a miracle. And so please read with me in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians She had spent all that she had and was no better off, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. A number of years ago, I picked up a book entitled Beautiful Boy by an author, David Sheff. The subtitle of this book is A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction. Uh, His son, his name was Nick. He was every little boy. It's like the the children that we all know so very well. And reading of this boy's descent into addiction uh, was painful and heartbreaking. It it brings sorrow to the soul when you read it. And as I read this, I always debated never picking it up again because it was just really miserable to read. Uh, But for some reason, I kept coming back to it over and over again. It was was an odd thing that something just spurred in me that I, I just had to keep reading And as I read it, what I realized was that in the midst of the misery and the despair of this father's words, I longed for peace. And I wanted something to change. I wanted redemption to come in his life. I wanted to read a story that was filled with joy and a a happy ending. And so I kept reading. I refused to leave the story because surely it wasn't going to end in misery and I didn't want to be left there. And it was this this longing for peace that made me keep reading and keep searching. Well, for Jairus and this woman, they were living in great misery, and they longed for peace. They searched for their own happy ending. But they were at the end of their resources, at the end of their hope, and really, they only had one card left to play. It was Jesus. He would be their last resort. And if he doesn't and can't do anything, then there was no hope at all. Jairus, just going to have to forgive me and not be distracted by this. I may call him Jarius at some point in this sermon. I don't know why, but I just keep thinking it, probably because I've been listening to Darius Rucker this summer. But Jairus, the Greek is Ierus, but I can't say that consistently, so 
Um, we have Jairus. He's a ruler in the synagogue. Now, he's an administrator. Um, he's overseeing the work and the resources of the synagogue. Some of his responsibilities would have included organizing the school, caring for the facility, taking care of the scrolls. He would have ordered the services there. It was a position of importance in the social and religious life of the Israelite community. And still, his prominence and his expertise did not keep him from the misery of our fallen world. His precious daughter, she was 12 years of age. This was an age of maturity in Israel. But for him, she was still just his little girl. My little daughter, he says to Jesus. And she's at the point of death. For 12 years, this man had the privilege of enjoying life with his precious little girl, and now she reached the end. He knew that she was about to take her final breath, and this was his misery. Now, over the same 12 years that he enjoyed his little girl, this woman, she suffered greatly. Her life was miserable. She suffered from some kind of hemorrhage uh, that she had. It was a constant state that she lived in. And her life, as the scripture says, she suffered much. Or another way we could translate this is that she suffered severely. Her misery reached into every arena of her life, physically, socially, religiously. Physically, not only did she suffer in her body, but she also suffered financially. The Bible tells us that she went to many physicians and she suffered under them, and, and she had spent all that she had looking for healing, but in the end, she was no better off. In fact, she was worse, worse off and financially destitute as a result. Her physical ailment made life miserable for her socially as well, in the context of an Israelite community, this flow of blood meant that she was in a constant state of ceremonial uncleanliness or ritual impurity. This meant that she was going to be shunned by others because they didn't want to catch her uncleanliness. She was an outcast. She was sent out and isolated from her community, the covenant people of God. If you were to ask somebody who knew her in that day who this woman was, they would have said she's the contaminator, the woman who is perpetually unclean. That was this woman's identity. And of course, the greatest misery for her was religious. We learn in Leviticus about this ritual purity. And Leviticus describes two divisions. There is that which is holy and that which is common. God is holy. Everything else is common. But under this category of common were two other categories, clean and unclean, pure and impure. And there were various things in, in life that would cause someone to move down this continuum from clean to unclean. And then there were in order to move back from this state of impurity back to purity, people would have to go through various ceremonial practices uh, to become clean again. The point of all of that was to continually point the people to the absolute holiness of God, to declare to them and remind them that in order to come before him, they themselves had to be 
pure, but they were sinners. And sin is something that defiles, it corrupts, and it separates from God. And so her physical affliction, it didn't mean that she was living immorally, but it was a real and unrelenting confirmation of her separation from God. It kept her from the covenant community. The very practices that were established by God in order to establish and confirm this covenant relationship that his people had with him, she couldn't participate in them. She was kept from the very things that were to be a reminder to her and instruction to her that she had God's abiding peace. That was her great misery. And it's not just Jairus and this woman, is it? I mean, misery is universal. It has no boundaries. It excludes no person. And human history is marked by failing, by suffering, by despair. Our lives are filled with struggle and disappointment and pain. We know it and we feel it. And we know something of this grief of this dad, don't we? Some of you, you know the visceral grief of what it means to bury a child. Many more of you know the fear of death, to live with it as a parent. Perhaps most of us knows what it means for a loved one to draw their final breath, to stand at the grave of someone only weeks or or months before we held their hand. We know it and we feel it. And we understand something of the plight of this woman Physically, our bodies testify to the misery of this fallen world. Some of you, you're not only suffering, but you suffer severely. We know it. We feel it. And it's not just the physical. It reaches into our relationships as well. Discord and loneliness. Bitterness and disappointment, failings, betrayals, indifference, selfishness, dishonesty. I mean, it seems we get one relationship put together and finding peace, and then we turn the corner and another one falls apart. Misery is real. We know it, and we feel it. And the problem, the reason for this misery is not simply just physical, or natural, as the world would try to tell us. But these things are only signs of the real problem. You see, the real problem ultimately is religious. You see, peace between us and God has been broken. And the source of this problem is sin, an ethical violation of God's holy and righteous decree. And the result of man's rebellious sin is that we live under the wrath and curse of God and the misery that accompanies that curse. 
You see, the reason that misery is universal is because, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is, is more than mere actions. It is, it is a reality, a pervasive reality that resides in each and every one of us. We have, as Paul says, the law of sin dwelling in us. Every part of us, all of us, has been corrupted and defiled by this sin. And thus, we are left with a misery that we can't just simply patch up over the weekend. And in all this misery, we long for peace, don't we? Don't we? We long for peace. And the good news of this passage is that Jesus restores peace to the miserable. That's what he does. He restores peace to the miserable. It's such a simple thing, but it's a truth that we need to hear, especially in our deep longing for peace as we live in a world that's suffocated by sin and misery. And so we start. I'm going to start with this woman. She had heard reports about Jesus. She had heard about the works and the words of Jesus, and it gave her hope, right? I mean, there, here was this one reportedly doing things that only God can do, and there he was, within arm's reach. She thought to herself, if only I could touch his garments, surely I will be made clean, surely I will be healed, and so she, 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 she says, she speaks of, I can be made well. And this, this, this word made well is in the passive form, which means that she knew that this was not something that she could accomplish for herself, that what she needed, it had to come from outside of her and be given to her. She needed the power of God, power that only belonged to Jesus. And she hoped that she could somehow receive it. And so as Jesus made his way to Jairus' house and this crowd is pushing in around him, she pushes her way through the crowd and coming up behind him, she touches the tassel on the corner of his robe and in an instant, she's healed. And she feels this flow of blood dry up. 12 years of misery gone in a moment. Imagine that. I mean, how confounding is that? It's a miracle. How amazing. What power. Now, in response to this, she shrinks back. Right? She kind of falls back into the crowd, hoping to maintain her anonymity. But Jesus has no part in her remaining anonymous. He, he is not content simply to, to, to have her physical uh, healing, but he had more to give to her. And so he turns around in the crowd and he asks, who touched my garments? Now, the disciples think kind of like they do at this point in his ministry. They think he's a bit crazy at times. They don't understand, right? But they're about to. And this woman who had already been drawn to Jesus because of the reports that she had heard about him now is drawn before him because of his great work in her life. And she comes, as Mark describes, in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. 
What a beautiful picture. She knew what had just happened. I think she knew who Jesus was. And so she came and she confessed the truth before him. And the manner of her approach is a fitting one, fear and trembling, because how else does the creature come before the creator? How else does the powerless come before the almighty, the humble, before the Lord of heaven? We come and we fall down, we tremble and we fear, and we confess what we know to be true. And Jesus responds to her in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, how reassuring and comforting that word must have been to her. I mean, here she is. She's been alienated from her community, worse, alienated from God. And now Jesus says to her, daughter, no longer are you one separated, alienated from God, but you are a child, a daughter. And he says, your faith has made you well. Now, this word made well is, is actually the same word. It can be used to both physical healing and also salvation in an ultimate spiritual sense, if you will. And I think we have good reason to believe that Jesus meant both when he said this. And here's why. First, if he intended only physical healing, there was another word that he could have chosen to use, but he didn't. And so it at least makes us stop and think. But then he links the salvation to our faith. And this is consistent with how we receive salvation that, that Christ has accomplished. We are saved by grace, through faith in Christ, in trust and dependence upon Jesus alone to accomplish the very thing that we cannot accomplish on our own, peace with God. And the peace Jesus leaves with her, he says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, I want to draw your attention to the NIV, the New International Version translation, because it says for this, be healed of your disease, it translates it, be free from your suffering. And the reason I highlight it is this word from is important. In the Greek, it's a little preposition that emphasizes a disassociation or a separation. In verse 35, it speaks of these people who had come from the house of Jairus, right? Like no longer are they a part of the house they are now disassociated, separated from the house. And the point is no longer is this woman's identity going to be wrapped up in her impurity and suffering, right? No longer will she be identified by her affliction, but rather she will now be identified by the very peace that Jesus has given to her. Instead of physical ailment, she will know vitality and wholeness. Instead of being a contaminating outcast in her relationships, now she gets to participate in the full life of the community of God's people. And most importantly, no longer is she alienated from practicing her covenant relationship with the Lord. She gets to commune with God and dwell with him freely safely, peacefully in his presence. He says to her, go in peace and be free from your suffering. Now, 
as Jesus is still speaking, some come from Jairus. Jairus, see, I told you I would do that. Jairus' house. And they deliver the bad news that while he was away, his daughter had died. And they tell him to leave Jesus, leave the, leave the teacher, leave Jesus alone. And, but Jesus will have nothing of it. And, and he says to Jairus, he says, do not fear, only believe. Right? Like, don't give in to the terror and the devastation of this moment, Jairus. This isn't over. Trust me. And so he takes with him, he takes Jairus with him, and they go to his house. And when they get there, there's all these people. They're professional mourners. And that day, it was custom to hire people to weep and to well in order to, to express the great devastation that had come upon the family. And seeing this, Jesus quiets them. And, and he tells them that the girl is not dead, but she is only sleeping. Of course, this is an indication of what he was about to do. But, but the professional mourners, they knew what a dead person looked like, and so they laugh and they mock. They scorn Jesus for what he just said. But they do so because they didn't understand. And such is the response often to Jesus for those who do not understand. They mock and they laugh. And then in a moment of tenderness, the text says that Jesus took the child's father and the mother into the very room where their little daughter, her body laid, and he took the girl's hand and he commanded her to arise. And like that, the dead is raised to life, and they're amazed. Try to put yourself in that moment. Put yourself in the deep, deep, visceral grief in a room with your dead child. And then Jesus grabbing her by the hand and saying, arise, and she's alive. This is our Lord. And he tells them not to tell anyone this is a common command early in the ministry of Jesus. Some people refer to it as the messianic secret. Uh, some say that he gave this command as a form of crowd control. It's a reasonable guess. Uh, it's just a guess. Theologically, others uh, will say that the full revelation of the kingdom was to come at his own death and resurrection, and thus a call to silence in these early miracles. And then this little line that ends the story, it's, it's something we could so easily read past. He tells them to give her something to eat. How thoughtful, how practical, and how human this is. I mean, Jesus is like, look, y'all, I know you're amazed, but this girl's been through a lot. Somebody ought to fix her some mac and cheese. <laughs> She's hungry. As a sweet reminder, a small detail that the Lord really does care for even the smallest things in our lives. Give her something to eat. Jesus, he restores peace to the miserable. When Christ came, he came to restore peace. And so what peace did he restore to us? 
Well, first, and of utmost importance, Christ secured peace with God. The reason for our misery is sin. And as sinners, our greatest problem is the very wrath of God. And we just aren't good enough. We're not powerful enough to remove that problem from us. But Jesus is. Jesus is good enough because he's the righteous son of God. He's good enough to save. He's also powerful enough. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Death cannot contain him. He's good enough and powerful enough to take away the consequence of sin. And the wrath and curse of God, he dealt with at the cross. He extinguished God's wrath at the cross. When we sing of his atonement, we're singing of that great reality. And by doing this, he made peace between us and a holy God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, and through him, that's through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And like Jairus and this woman, we receive this gift of peace by faith. I wondered as I read, read through this uh, this week, if, if Jairus and this woman had the opportunity, if they lived long enough to read Paul's words in the book of Romans, chapter 5. And if they did, I wonder how it hit them when he wrote, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, Jesus, Jesus restores peace to the sinner. Secondarily, Christ has secured peace from the misery of our suffering and the fear of death. You see, the miracles of Jesus serve as a foretaste of the ultimate reality that Christ would bring to full and final fruition when he comes again, when he comes and consummates he, he, to usher in his kingdom so that his kingdom would, in fact, be on earth as it is in heaven. And these healings are an accompanying sign of the coming kingdom. In Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Healing accompanies the coming kingdom. And so we pray for healing. We pray for healing because Jesus really does heal. And at times, he will heal in immediate and miraculous ways, and other times, he will use various means to bring an end to our suffering. But even if he doesn't heal in this life, we still have great hope. We do not despair. 
Because ultimately, we will be set free from our suffering in glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, speaking of the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, Paul says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He continues in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the return of Christ, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, when Christ comes again to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we will be healed. We will be healed. All of us who belong to Christ will be made well, be set free from our suffering. We will be raised to immortality, to honor, to glory, to no longer suffer the misery that we know all too well today. It's our great hope and our great joy. Jesus restores peace to the suffering. Third, and even more, Christ secured peace for the purpose of a new community. I think about the community that's restored to this woman who's been an outcast in it. Think about the community restored to this family and their little girl. I mean, Jesus reconciled us to himself, gave us peace with God, and then he united us together in him. I mean, we share a deep, a profound bond as those who belong to Christ. This past week, my wife attended a funeral of a dear friend that we knew from college. Uh, We were involved in a campus ministry together, Um, some 20 years ago. And at this funeral, there was a group of fellow believers from this campus ministry all standing together, um, worshiping, worshiping. And Hannah reflected on that moment, and she realized that the last time that this group of people had gathered was some 20 years ago, worshiping side by side. You see, life and our callings have taken us in different directions. And some of these relationships have been maintained. Others we've discovered after college were just for a season. But through it all, we're still bound together by Christ. That's That's a profound thing and a profound gift he's given to us. We are a new community, the family of God, united together in Jesus, and this guides us 
It guides us in how we're to live together. In such a community, we are to love one another as we've been loved by Christ. We're to show honor and kindness and gentleness and patience. We're to do good and show mercy and act justly with one another. We're to grieve with one another, grieve with those who grieve. We're to rejoice with one another, rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to seek peace as those who've been given peace with God. We're to seek purity as those who've been made pure by the blood of Christ. We're to seek unity with one another as those who've been united together in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are knit together, bond together. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually, you're members of it. We're bound together. Jesus restores us for the purpose of living in a community. And finally, Christ has secured peace for all of creation. When he returns at his coming, he will restore all of creation to shalom, to this peace that existed in the original creation before the sin of Adam. Only only this new, glorious creation will be far better because it will be unable to be changed and fall from its redeemed state. It will forever be established as the new heavens and the new earth where the peace of Christ permeates and rules and reigns over all things. This piece is pictured so well for us in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be the full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus restores peace to all of creation. When we get up and we leave our seats here today, we're going to head right back into a world that's, that's suffocated by sin and misery. And as we get up and we go, we go out not like Jairus and this woman at the beginning of their story. We're not going out at the end of our hope. But rather, by faith, we go out like Jairus and this woman at the end of their story. As those who have encountered Jesus as those who know him, as those who trust him, as the one who restores peace to the miserable, as those who have a story to tell. And take heart, even 
as we continue to suffer, even suffer severely, as we face the reality of death, we find our strength in the peace that only Jesus gives. Jesus restores peace to the miserable. He restores peace to you. Don't be afraid. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, how remarkable it is that we've been called by you. We gather together in this worship service And we know we have peace with you. And we understand, we confess, we understand that we are sinners in your sight. And it is is our duty and obligation, it's our right response to confess that sin. And then you shower upon us this assurance of forgiveness and remind us that Jesus, your son, secured this peace by his death on the cross resurrection from the dead. And so, Father, we do pray for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We anticipate and look forward to the day in which we will see you face to face, in which you will come and consummate your kingdom and to create this new heaven and new earth where your peace will rule and reign over all things, where sin will be no more, misery will be gone, and we will stand and bask in your glorious presence, and you will be our pleasure forevermore. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit today in this great hope that we've encountered Jesus, that we know you, that we trust you, as the one, the only one, who can give us peace, peace with you, peace with one another, peace from our suffering, peace over all things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.